Hello and welcome to Propnex, the property podcast focusing on issues that impact the future of the real estate industry. I'm your host, Gavin Morgan, and in addition to looking forward to today's and future conversations, if you'd like to know a little bit more about me, please look on www.propnex.com. That's www.propnx.com. Or if you'd like to chat privately, drop me a line on Gavin R. Morgan at propnex.com. That's G-A-V-I-N-R-M-O-R-G-A-N at propnex.com on email. I'm pleased to welcome Sean Henry, Vice President of Alliance Residential New England, onto the show today. Sean and I have been good friends uh, and have worked together for, I don't know, Sean, probably about the last 10 years. At least it feels like that. And uh, I'm delighted. I know we've chatted about doing this for a while. So absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today to talk about multifamily, particularly in the the sort of northeastern part of the United States where you're based. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, Thanks for having me, Gav. It's always a pleasure to jump on and talk about a shop with someone like yourself. Oh, good stuff. Well, hopefully, hopefully it will be fun. And Sean, I thought it'd be good. Uh, could we kick off with maybe just a short intro to you and your career to date in the United States, uh, sort of staying around the yeah, the areas that you'd like to focus on? Yeah, yeah. So um, as you mentioned, obviously, I'm currently as a vice president with um, Lions Residential here in New England. Prior to that, I was with uh, I was on the LP side with AW Capital Management. Um and then prior to that, I was with uh, two two private developers here on the Boston area. So ultimately, you know, on one side or the other of the same coin, but always been heavily focused around the, the residential or multifamily development space. Yeah, Shauna, j- just straight into that. Um, I mean, obviously, you and I have both worked in different parts of the world, but multifamily is not a familiar term uh, to a lot of people. And certainly on this show, we've got a lot of people tuning in from different parts of the world. Maybe just a quick, simple explanation of what multifamily is, please. Yeah, well, really, it's just a, it's apartments that, that you would rent out, but I guess specifically as a you know, focused asset class here in North America, you're generally talking you know, 150, 200 units plus. Um, not always Class A. We, we, we do focus on Class A product, but you know, your typical large-scale you know, serviced building with, you know, a, a good, healthy host of amenities is really where we focus most of our time. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, yeah, basically on-block rental uh, property for, for living in. And, yeah, obviously the multifamily term, I think, uh, was born and comes out of the United States. And so just going back a few seconds then, you've been around this space a lot uh, in your career, all of your career in real estate, why do you like multifamily rental housing as an asset class? Uh, why is it at the top of mind for you? Um, I think personally, for me, it's it's it, it requires quite a bit of sophistication, and you know, when I, I ultimately spend most of my career in kind of a cradle to grave situation where you know you're not just coming in at you know construction or leasing or permitting or you know whatever you know, area you would like to talk about along that spectrum. So I think when you have to take a full large-scale multifamily development project from conception right the way through delivery, there's so many nuances that go into that. Um, And even just take, for example, the construction methodology, like that is just more of a sophisticated, I think if you were to look at it 
you know, across the whole spectrum of sectors, I would argue that maybe only hotel and something like life sciences or lab, you know, can get as nuanced. So um, personally, I think that's why I was attracted to it and why I like to spend a lot of my time there. You know, I, I did a little bit of industrial work when I was at AW and, and I've done a little bit of hotel um, stuff back in Ireland. But ultimately, it's just one. It's obviously going quite well in the US, which always helps at the moment, you know, where cap rates are at and where demand is at. But so I think it's just probably, you know, those two factors pushing together, you know, it being a good space to be in uh, from a business standpoint, but then also it being something that I genuinely enjoy and I'm interested in and is is constantly evolving too, right? So it's not just as if, you know, the industry or the, the stuff that the, the product type that we, we, we primarily spend our time has remained steady. It is just changing all the time. And you're constantly asking the questions as to how you can improve and you know, is it something that our ultimately our residents are going to want to live in long term, or are we going to deliver something that's going to come out, you know, become out of fashion pretty quickly? So, yeah, it's pretty interesting for those two reasons. And, and I, it is interesting. I mean, on one hand, it's homes for people to live in, and we live in a world, unfortunately, of great housing shortage. You know, particularly of the quality that is required for you know people to enjoy a comfortable standard of living. On the other hand, it is one of the oldest sectors, certainly as an asset class out there. It's heavily picked over. There is a wall of capital looking at this space. Um, Is it a sector where you can have sustained interest and expect returns? And if you think it is, why do you think it stays the course um, as an asset class that is investable uh, into the future? Yeah, I think it's it's a super question, right? And it's something we're always looking at. I think, you know, if you look at it from a national level down, um, I think you really have to be focusing on population growth, migration, wages, employment. And you kind of have to constantly relate that in the sectors you're in. Also in terms of two, availability of land and deal flow. You know, so from that aspect, some cities say like Phoenix or Las Vegas is a completely different animal to what we have here, you know, around the Boston or the Northeast. Um, I think in Boston, we are a little bit spoiled in some ways because our, I think we've quite a natural supply demand imbalance. You know, if you look at the, the Boston area or the Northeast in general, you know, half of it, first of all, is cut off by the Atlantic Ocean. Then you look at Boston and you have two natural almost like belts around it you've you know, route 128 and 495 so that creates you know and obviously a supply issue then the further west you go the state gets quite wet and quite rocky so that delivers with its own problems and then on top of that the greater boston area is a collection of individual towns and municipalities all with their specific zoning and ordinances so it's not as if it's just this one mass of land that can expand in any direction. So throw on top of that then that Boston has, I believe, 20 individual, it's from a healthcare standpoint, it is 20 hospitals, I think four of which are in the top 50 in the United States. You have 30 plus, you know, higher level colleges and universities. And I want to say by the last count, 11, we're in the top 100. Um, then on top of that, one thing that we've really leveraged off or we're looking to leverage off is the growth in the biotech um, and lab markets. As of the latest rankings, it was uh, it, would, it came out top ahead of San Francisco. 
terms of, I believe it got 10% of all, um, I, I can't remember, NIH, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but um, it got 10% of all funding national. So um, all of those factors, you know, really create a, quite a healthy demand. And if you can establish yeah, yourself, indeed. you can yeah. you can navigate that. And if you can, thankfully, like I was able to do, get in, learn the business, learn the nuances of the business, I think then you can you can provide a platform that ultimately will always be attractable to capital because they're trying to break into quite a parochial market. And that's that's I think why we've had success and, and ultimately we've been able to probably continue that for quite yeah. some time. And that speaks to the long term. I mean it's complicated and there's a lot of work in releasing opportunities, you know, and that comes through clearly even from what you've said. Another, um, I mean, another massive factor in real estate, Sean, that for sure is going to impact the residential sector is how sustainability is going to be a major factor in everything happens happening, refurbishment, redevelopment moving forward. Uh, is that something that's become a major factor for you with some of the schemes that you're looking at and do you think it's going to do you think it's going to change much about the attractiveness of this sector i don't Uh, and are you seeing uh, the work that you're doing or the professional teams that you're working with being innovative do you think innovation will be driven from the u.s in this respect or do you see that coming from somewhere else and then being onboarded into u.s real estate yeah, it's a super question, and I think it's something that's evolving in real time. Um, it's it's something that I've spent quite a bit of, you know, um, quite a bit of effort looking at and trying to relate it back to what we do. Um, I think the influence comes from a lot of places. Quite honestly, I think one that is quite common is that you will have a sustainability requirement that's driven from the local municipality. Um, and I think that's good and that's healthy, provided there is a certain amount of flexibility around that. I think you'll see, I know within the city of Boston, um, you're doing a large project under the large project review process. You have a requirement to have need certification or at least try and get some certification. Um, from my experience, LEED is a fantastic um, certification to get. However, from our standpoint as multifamily developers, it's also the most difficult. First and foremost, because the actual filing fees that are required up front when you're putting a lot of your capital at risk um, and using your own balance sheet to do so prior to bringing on debt or your, your third-party equity, you've quite a heavy burden to carry early. Um, and not only that, the requirements as you move through construction and you're trying to guarantee cost certainty to your partners it's it's a difficult one to manage. Um, personally, I think the ones that work best at the current time for for multifamily in the US is uh, NGBS and Green Globes. Both of those have a uh, have a, a, a kind of a easier lift on the, on the front end, like an easier upfront requirement, mm. and they allow mm. you to also kind of also like I I think they. Some of these certifications, you have to be very conscious of what level you land at, because if you shoot too high, you could burden yourself with an obligation to deliver a building that you might not have cost certainty to 
to do so. Does that make sense? I, I'm probably not yeah, well, no, no, well, it does. But look, for everyone, it's a returns-based proposition when you're developing schemes like this. And I hear what you're saying. I mean, you're, you've got to strive for as much as you can in terms of respecting the environment. Uh, but it's obviously got, it needs to be viable financially as well. I think that's what you're touching on, yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of. I think it's 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 trying to marry everything together. Right? Like, what does our end user want? Does our tenant really care about us having a certification? Uh, how do you balance that then with your obligation to your capital partners and deliver a return? And then ultimately, how do you pick something that actually benefits the environment? And you know, the, the classic thing, sustainability, is yeah. you know, where do they draw the box? How does that actually relate back to benefiting? Yeah, you know, Sean, 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 that's a really. Uh, I think a. Really interesting what you've just said there. Um, are there, I mean, I've always, people, uh, as I've watched the sustainability space in real estate for the last 15 years, um, the question that comes up time and time again is, when is green going to stand for dollars? And yeah. as unpleasant as it might seem, uh, when a community, irrespective of what the community is, is incentivized to think in a more sustainable or environmentally friendly way, progress tends to happen a lot faster. I think that's really part of just the way of the world. Is there anything, is there anything that's incentivizing tenants at the moment to look for a green development or a green property? And if not, do you agree that if there were measures in place, you know, whether it's tax breaks or whatever, to encourage tenants to rent green rather than you know just rent on historic criteria which would of course be bundled in with green in the future anyway you think that would make a big positive difference and also help developers get best in market type projects up in terms of how they take care of the environment definitely and, and, and you you hit the nail on the head it really comes from it, you know if you surveyed you know across all our prospective residents it, again specifically in relation to our market here, they're looking at where is it located, what's the product quality like, and what's the price. It's, it's a tough vacancy within the greater Boston area. Per the Boston, Boston Globe report recently, was at 1%. So, you know, does that tenant have the luxury to be able to say, well, if it's not a Green Globe building or if it's not NGBS or if it's not LEED, I'm not moving in. However, you know, if there was a government incentive that says, and claim back whatever 10% of the rent that you've paid throughout the life of your lease, you know, when you move out, if you move into a into a, a green certified building, that would change, that would shape up everything. So I think it's a super idea and you know, not one that we're really seeing a lot of. Just yet. Yeah. yeah and are you, I mean, Sean, maybe I'm um, reaching a bit here, but are you, are local municipalities or uh, the public sector bodies that are responsible for uh, entitlement per permissions and certification, do they have net zero goals or net zero targets? I mean, if they do, it probably stands to reason that they will eventually translate to this type of thinking and regulation around renting. But is that is that in place across the board yet, or is that something that's yet to come in the locations where you're uh, focused? Yeah, I think it's it's probably a little different for us again because the idea of the, the greater Boston area being made up of the, all the individual municipalities. So you could be dealing with a town like Waltham, one 
cycle or for one project, or then you could be in Cambridge or Boston, which is, and you know, you're talking a distance of a couple of miles in some instances. So, um, obviously Cambridge carries the likes of MIT, Harvard. It is a completely different world to doing something two miles down the road. So yes, those municipalities most likely will force some sort of a sustainability or a green certification on you in some way, shape or form. Um, and that's honestly, when you know up front, you can do something about it. If you, if you can ultimately understand that you're you know, underwriting your deal and your feasibility and you're something that's acutely aware of that and you know exactly what you have to hit, at the end of the day, our business is, is all about certain delivering upon what you said you're going to do. So if you know up front that that's what you, you, know, you can do, you can incorporate that into the opportunity and assess the viability that from the start. So that's not the end of the world, but I think we're, where we're seeing probably an interesting wrinkle is actually more from the LP capital side. Oftentimes, whatever um, fund that the capital partner is ultimately choosing to fund our venture from, a lot of the time that prospectus will have a green um, or a sustainable requirement. And as a result, our building then has to be associated with something. So um, that's that's probably something I found in the last while that's changing quite a bit is that more and more LP capital is looking is looking to drive sustainability yeah. requirement on a building rather than the municipalities doing it. So yeah. it's interesting just where you see it coming from. Yeah, and that is, and really, Sean, so in summary, it sounds like a lot of runway in this market, you know, largely for the reasons that you mentioned earlier in the chit-chat, but it also sounds really encouragingly that there's a whole evolution still to take place in the sector that can drive much more sustainable, environmentally friendly development, which I think is a real positive, um, and, and, and even better that there's motivation, as you've just mentioned, in the private sector um, that will reach out to public authorities to, to bridge that gap and probably drive the type of change that we're talking about in the short term moving forward. Uh, it'll also make it a much more interesting development and refurbishment landscape. I agree. Um, before we wrap up, Sean, um, a, a slightly cheeky pivot from the closing question that I was going to ask you, but I, I got to ask you, um, oh, uh, we were going to talk about best in class residential, uh, your favorite multifamily or residential scheme of all that you've seen, which one do you like most? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. Actually, uh, the Echelon and the Seaport uh, delivered about maybe about two years ago now, um, that split both condos and apartments. And forgive me, I'm blanking on the name of the developer right now, the group from out of, out of town, but they did it. So this is the echelon in the Boston seaport. Okay. Yeah, so, so we could look for you putting an offer down yeah. sometime <laughs> in the near future. Yeah. yeah. I might try and, I might try and, uh, you know, I don't know if it'll be out of bounds, but I might try and, uh, take a look at it because they, they just did it. I think you look through, um, you know, just to, to, to labor this point a little bit, I think when you're going through the cycle of a project, and if you are doing it the way we approach it, just kind of cradle to grave, right? Everything is in-house and driven by a, a central team. I think what I really appreciate is the people that can pay attention to the details while also driving a project forward, because there are so many decisions. Um, and to be able to carry that through and you know understand 
you know, what the light outside your unit door looks like relative to lobby lights and, and ultimately then coordinating that across hundreds of units is a is is quite a challenge a great challenge but then when you see people who pull it off and do it well it's 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 really something else something i kind of geek out on to be honest with you i'll be going googling myself after this conversation but uh sean henry it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show and thank you very much for joining us uh today absolute pleasure guys thank you so that's a wrap and it just leaves it for me to thank you very much for tuning in and listening to our conversation and as i mentioned at the beginning if you'd like any information uh, or you want to have a chat uh, drop me a line on gavin r morgan at propnext.com g-a-v-i-n-r-m-o-r-g-a-n at propnext.com or there's more information as i said earlier too on www.propnext.com propnext.com that's www.propnx.com i look forward to speaking with you in future podcasts and thank you again